Welcome to Chicago Tabernacle, a place of becoming. Wherever you find yourself, we pray that you would be encouraged today by God's Word. Grab your Bible or your uh, iPhone, your droid, whatever, your flip phone if you have it even. And let's go to Numbers chapter 6. So I want to just thank the Lord for mercy and for rescuing me when I was 17. And um, he's still more real now than he's ever been. So I don't deserve to be here. Certainly don't deserve to talk about him. Somewhere, our 21-year-old daughter, Layton, is wandering around here. So got to hang out with her yesterday. And uh, Pastor Al and Pastor Chrissy, obviously they're not here, but I just want to thank the Lord for them. Thank the Lord for pastors and leaders who just believe in the power of prayer. You can tell when a church prays. And you can tell the difference between singing at God and singing to Him. So this is a special place. It's amazing what can happen when we say yes. And years ago, the Toledos said yes to come and just begin to serve and love this amazing city. So it's just a privilege to be here. I wish I could see them. Give them a hug for me, a big bear hug. And um, in a moment, what I want to talk to you about is humility and how when we humble ourselves before the Lord, it creates an insatiable appetite inside Jesus to draw near to us. Um, I also want to honor you for loving and serving your city. We're living in an age where, according to Matthew 24, the love of most is growing cold. That means that love is a new idea. Love is a sign and a wonder. Perhaps there would have been a day where you thought, you know what, if a few angels would just drop down out of the sky and walk down the street, then people would know that God is real. But you know, love is just as much a sign and a wonder. So thank you for loving people uh, and serving people. There's something about serving those who are in need. When Jesus introduced himself to the world, he, in his public ministry, I should say, he is in what, is, what was called a synagogue. And the scroll of Isaiah is rolled out and he reads or quotes from the scroll of Isaiah and he says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord. So Jesus, an itinerant Jewish rabbi, the first thing he says publicly that we have record of in the synagogue is from Isaiah, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Now we know that in the kingdom of God, it's not just about serving the poor, right? It's about staying faithful to the one you're married to. It's about being faithful with your finances. It's about keeping your word. It's about uh, refusing to change your opinion based on who's in the room. It means you don't use relevance as an excuse to compromise. but it also means we serve those who are in need. In the book of Revelation chapter three, Jesus said to his church, he said, you are wretched, poor, blind, and naked, and yet you say you have need of nothing. I want you to go and buy for me gold refined in the fire. So if you think about that, it's an illogical request because Jesus says, you're poor. Now I want you to walk into Tiffany's and buy the most expensive piece of jewelry you can find. 
Well, that's impossible. How can I do that? I'm poor. You're wretched, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you, go buy gold for me that is refined in the fire. Lord, I can't buy any gold for you. I'm poor. That's the point. Now we're on the same page. The reason why serving the poor is dear to the Lord's heart, it's not just because God is a God of justice. It's also because we are all poor without him. Poverty is not just socioeconomic. It is not just financial. It is also very much a condition of the human heart. Some of the deepest realms of joy I've ever experienced are in some of the poorest places in the world. Because of what I do, uh, my role as I serve on the team at Convoy of Hope, I frequently travel to some of the most world's desolate and arid places. I've looked into the eyes of Warshock refugees. I've wrapped my arms around men who have leprosy. I've held children in my arms who are severely malnourished. This is what I do week after week after week, month after month. Have a front row seat to this thing called poverty. It is an illegitimate reality. It was not part of God's original design. It does not exist in the kingdom. So when the kingdom comes to the earth, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For those of us who know God, we have this mandate sounds a bit demanding. We have this privilege to serve the vulnerable and the marginalized, to love the poor. Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's preached, anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. It's a reminder when we serve those in need that apart from him, we are all impoverished. But I've been in villages and places like, well, I won't even say the countries. I've been in some of the poorest places in the world and some of the deepest realms of joy come from the huts. When you walk past a hut where they have no food, they have no money, but they have joy and they have one another. So in serving the poor, it's a reminder of how wealthy we are when we are loved by God. So thank you for loving your city. Thank you for serving others. Whatever you do unto anybody, whether great or least, you do it unto him. So Numbers chapter six says this, starting in verse 22. The Lord spoke to Moses. Who, who was Moses? Moses was a Hebrew who was raised in the palace of Pharaoh, who at the age of 40 became a murderer, who wandered in obscurity for 40 years, and at the age of 80, he has this moment where he meets Yahweh. The story is recorded in Exodus chapter three. Moses will become the emancipator, if you will, or the leader of a few million, according to conservative estimates, Hebrew slaves who were emancipated from ancient Egypt. That's who Moses is. He's a normal person, just like us. But he dared to slow down and notice when God lit the bush on fire. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons saying, this is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall you put my name on the children of Israel and I will bless them. For just a few minutes, I wanna to talk to you about uh, humility. And when we yield our heart to the Lord, he draws near. 
So uh, our humility, our yieldedness to him in many ways is the key to how the kingdom of God advances on the earth. The kingdom of God advances on the earth um, in an equivalent way to the humility of our heart. And what we do know is this, Jesus taught that we are in him and he is in us. So you can't get any closer than that. So we're in him, he's in us, and yet we can get closer. So how do you get closer to God? I know that regardless of where we come from, our education, our gender, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, there's not a person on the planet who says, I want God to be further away. Everybody wants to know if there is a God, how do I know God? And once I know God, how can I continue to develop this connection to God? Um, well, there are many, many verses in the, in the Bible that teach us some things about that. Hebrews eleven six says, God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. I love that God is a rewarder. I love that God does not sit on a throne expecting all of humanity to come before him like beggars and paupers and we petition him for divine intervention and he does nothing. No, he is movable. It says that he is a rewarder and God rewards us based on our pursuit. And I wanna be clear that um, our salvation is not based on works. How do we know that? It's what the Bible teaches. We're saved by grace through faith, not by works, so that nobody can boast. We also know that faith without works is dead. So it, it is the two-sided coin of faith and works. But God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So if you seek him at 10 miles an hour, you're gonna, you're gonna get that. You seek him at 150 miles an hour, you'll get that. How many of you know the view of the road changes based on how fast you go? And, and the distance you can cover in a period of time is very much related to the speed with which you travel. So he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. There's something about diligently seeking him. There's something about I'm going to get up a little bit early in the morning to be with him, right? That doesn't mean he loves you anymore. It's not like the people who rise at 4.30 have a better seat in eternity than the 6.30 crowd. It's not what it means. But what it does mean is that God pays attention to our effort and there's something about it. It's not about striving to receive God's approval, but I can tell what you believe based on how you behave. You're Christmas shopping right now. You're looking for that right gift because you want to diligently prove to your family members or your special someone that you really care about them. Nobody who wants to communicate to the love of their life, nobody walks into Walmart at 11.57 p.m. and just closes his or her eyes and grabs something from the shelf, throws it in the cart, wraps it, and hopes it works out. Nobody does that. Or if you've tried it before, you've never tried it again, right? <laughs> So no, what do we do? We diligently think about and we diligently look for something to communicate to someone we love how much they mean to us. So God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. We also know that Jeremiah 33 verse three, remember I'm talking about how we can get closer to God. It says, call to me and I will answer you. 
Prayerlessness is perhaps the greatest form of idolatry. Because we breathe the air God provides and yet we don't talk to him, right? And what can happen is you can experience a level of success in your life and before you know it, life goes by and you realize it's really not what it was cracked up to be. You can be successful at what does not matter in the end. It says, call to me and I will answer you. In order for God to answer our prayers, it means God hears our prayers. What a privilege it is to have a God who hears our prayers. He doesn't just hear our prayers, he answers. Call to me and I will answer you. But God doesn't just answer our prayers, he shows us the answers to our prayers. Because it says, Jeremiah 33 verse three, call to me, I will answer you and show you great and mighty things that you do not know. You know, prayer is one of those invitations that the Lord gives us where we can come before the king of the universe and inquire of what he has to say about anything and he hears and he answers. We can draw closer to God, not just by diligently seeking him, we can draw closer to God when we call out to him in prayer for he answers us and he shows us great and mighty things. We can get closer to God when we draw near to him. James 4, verse eight, draw near to God and God will draw near to you. You've never drawn near to God and God folds his arms and turns away. It's never happened, has it? Whenever you draw near to God, he draws near to you. Just think of it this way. You're like you're, you're sitting in a chair and whenever you're around a little child, little children are amazing. I love them. And now that our kids are 21 and 20, so we have two daughters, Allie and I have two daughters. They both still live at home. They're both single, but we know that there's going to come a day where they're going to meet that special someone and get married and move out and start a family of their own. No matter how old or how young your children are, if your child walks up to you and makes eye contact with you, what do you do? You don't get up and walk away. When that little one comes up to you, you put the, the book down, you put your laptop to the side and you look at the child. That's an example of what it means when you draw near to him he draws near to you. You become his dominant fixation when you draw near to him. So we can get closer to God when we diligently seek him. When we cry out to him in prayer, that's another way we can improve or increase our connection. When we draw near to God, drawing near to God is very much about a heart posture. You can drive down the road and draw near to God. You can type away in your cubicle and draw near to God. You can even be in a conversation right now listening to me, but right now your heart is drawing near to God. That's how you pray without ceasing. You bend your heart in his direction. So we, we can do a lot of things, hundreds of things, to improve our closeness with the Lord. But every now and then, God draws near to us. The Bible says in Psalm 138, verse six, God dwells with the humble. but he knows the proud from afar. There are some people who think the evil one is trying to destroy their life because things are not just working out. And it's not the evil one, it's pride. God opposes the proud, 
things are just not working out in my business. I must pray more. The devil is trying to destroy my life. Sometimes God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. If there is pride in our life, it never goes well. But the moment we humble ourselves and yield, God is there. He doesn't wait 20 minutes. He doesn't wait 20 days. The moment we humble ourselves, God, I want to know you. God, I need you. He's there. The humble he dwells with, but the proud he knows from afar. So when God dwells with the humble, that word dwell means to approach and be seen. So when God dwells with the humble, God doesn't look at you and the moment he finds humility, just show up and hide in the corner. God comes so close, you can see him. And what happens when God comes close enough so that you can see him? That's what number six is all about. So some context for number six. Again, I'm talking about what happens when God draws near. In number six, this is a priestly blessing. And the high priest used to pronounce this blessing over God's people once a year in what was called the holy place or the holy of holies. The high priest would take his hands like this and form the Hebrew letter sheen, which would be a symbol or metaphor for one of God's names, Shaddai, El Shaddai. He who dwells in the secret place abides under the shadow of El Shaddai, the Almighty. They would hold up their hands like this and pronounce this blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant you peace. It was a blessing considered so holy, so sacred, only the high priest could pronounce this blessing. The high priest had to come from the tribe of Levi. In ancient Jewish history, only two high priests did not come from the tribe of Levi. They achieved it, achieved that position, if you will, by merit. There are Aaron and Phineas. But otherwise, every other high priest comes from the tribe of Levi. It's interesting, the New Testament teaches that we have a great high priest named Jesus who sits at the right hand of the Father, whoever lives to make intercession for the saints. The book of Hebrews teaches that we can approach the throne of grace with boldness. Boldness, why? Because we have a high priest who's able to sympathize with us during our time of need. Ironically, Jesus is not from the tribe of Levi. He's from the tribe of Judah. So he broke the rules. The high priest up until the year AD 70, and this is documented by historians like, uh, like Josephus, after Jesus was resurrected from the dead, the high priest would still lift up his hands and pronounce his blessing annually. And the, Bible, the history books teach that a blue light from heaven would shine and hit the high priest's hands. And for about 40 years after the resurrection of Jesus, the high priest would still pronounce the blessing and his hands would glow. After Herod's temple was destroyed, it stopped. I'm not sure what that means. It means something. The blessing was God's idea. If you read in number six, it's not as if God is responding to a question Moses has. God is not responding to um, something Moses said previously. Out of nowhere, God says, Moses, I want you to tell Aaron and his sons to say this 
over Israel. So why doesn't God just speak it over Israel himself? Why doesn't God speak to Aaron? Instead, God talks to Moses, who's supposed to talk to Aaron. How many of you know, the further down the line, the story changes? Remember the telephone game in elementary school? But God speaks to Moses to tell Aaron, to tell the sons of Israel, to speak this blessing over Israel. What it tells me is that sometimes God does speak through other people. And that is offensive because nobody is perfect. I certainly don't have the right to stand up here and talk about God. I'm walking the same road you're walking. And I'm thankful for mercy. And I will not abuse his mercy either. I will live the rest of my life like you, set apart unto him. He's worthy of nothing less. But sometimes God will speak through other people. It requires humility to listen to an imperfect vessel talk about a perfect and holy God. So the idea starts with God. So what does God do when he dwells with the humble? In number six, you don't just read the blessing, you can actually see it. Now, in ancient Hebrew, each letter corresponds to a number. Now, I'm not talking about numerology. That's a whole other planet we don't want to get on. But when you would read, when you read the Hebrew text, you see letters which form words, but you also see numbers. Hebrew was the class I struggled with the most in undergrad. And, um, but when you would read it, it, it's offensive to the Western mind, right? Because you read from right to left and you're reading a letter and a number and what, what does this mean? When you read number six, starting in verse 24 in the Hebrew, there are three words. Verse 25, there are five words. Verse 26, there are seven words. Three words, five words, seven words. Three plus five plus seven is 15. Now, when you receive a text message, you just don't like to read your text message. You like to see your text message. How do I know that? Because you'll say, good morning, honey, heart, smiley face, dancing baby meme. You do something like that, right? You wanna, you send an emoji, you send a meme, you send a gif, because you don't just want them to read the text message, you want them to see it. When I land and I've been in the middle of nowhere, and I'm coming home, there's nothing like seeing a text from my wife, Allie, with that red heart or a kissy face. In number six, to the ancient Hebrew mind, they wouldn't just read it, they would see it. Because you have three words, five words, seven words. Three plus five plus seven is 15. And to any ancient Hebrew, 15... If you take one and five, the letters are yod and hey, Hya. It's the most ancient form of the name of God. Hallelujah. When they would hear the blessing, they would see one five. They would literally see this is what God is like. This is what God does when God comes. So what does God do when God comes? The blessing starts out with, may the Lord bless you. 
Now in your Bible, it may be capital L, lowercase O-R-D. If so, that, it doesn't mean it's wrong, but that means your version or your translation uses more modern manuscripts and they translate Lord as Adonai, capital L, lowercase O-R-D. But if in your Bible, it's all capitals, L-O-R-D, that means they translate it from the more ancient manuscripts and that is the name of God, Yahweh. It is known as the Tetragrammaton or the ineffable name. Yahweh is, is the name of God considered to be so holy and so sacred, they never spoke God's name. There are no vowels, Y-H-W-H. There are no vowels. So because God's name was so holy, it goes back to Exodus 3, when Moses says to the Lord, when I go to Pharaoh, who should I say sent me? I am who I am. It is the most sacred name of God that the high priest and people never mentioned God's name. When ancient Hebrew scribes would copy down the Torah or part of you know, the first five books of the Bible, we'll say, when a scribe was copying the scriptures, whenever he, because all of the scribes back then were men, whenever he would come to the spot where he was about to write the name of God, he would get up and go through a rigorous ritual of ceremonial cleansing and washing, come back and write one uh, line to God's name. Get up, go and do it again, wash clean, come back, continue to write God's name. If one mistake was made on the paper, now remember, they didn't have books the way we have. They had these massive, long, you know, six foot long animal hides where they would write certain parts of scripture. If they made one mistake, they would throw the whole thing away and start over. Why? Because God's name was so holy, they didn't want to associate one simple literary mistake with God's name. So God's name is so holy, they don't even say God's name. How does God start the blessing? The name that is so sacred and holy, you won't speak it? I want you to say my name. Don't ever forget the awe and wonder of knowing his name. He is known as Hashem, the name. The name of God is so important, it is the consummation of the entire blessing in verse 27. What does it say? It says, therefore, I will put my name on them. That's the ultimate point. I will bless my people so that I can put my name on them. When I was younger, I used to pray the prayer all the time. God, more of you, less of me, more of you, less of me, more of you, less of me. I picked it up from a, some camp speaker. And I understand what it means. It's all good. But he already had less of us and he wasn't content with that. That's why Jesus came. It's almost like more of you, less of me. No, no, Heath, I want it the other way around. I want all of you. And then I'll give you my name and you can have all of me. The, the point of the blessing is the name. When we take the Lord's name in vain, it's so much deeper than a swear word or vulgarity. How do we take the Lord's name in vain? There are theology books filled with taking the Lord's name in vain. 
When you take the Lord's name in vain, you ascribe things to God that are incongruent with his character. Because I don't understand, I'll come up with another belief or teaching to explain what I don't understand. The Bible says that there's a peace that surpasses understanding. That means we have to take our right to understand and we lay it down at the altar and we refuse the right to understand. That's where peace comes. Another way we take the Lord's name in vain is to treat someone else who's made in his image with disrespect and dishonor. That's why racism is taking the Lord's name in vain. It's still hard to imagine that people actually discriminate against others because of their skin pigmentation or their gender or where they come from. Everybody, even those who don't know him, are made in his image. That's one of the reasons why we love others, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. It's one of the reasons why we're kind to other people. And the last thing I'm going to do is, um, you know, abuse, abuse you or mistreat you because my right to be right is greater than your right to be right. Is There's something about Loving people who are made in God's image, even if they don't know him. When we dishonor and disrespect people, and we've all done it. We've all done it. Umpteen million times. It's more than dis disrespecting somebody. It's taking his name in vain. We take the Lord's name in vain when our salvation becomes a finish line. And he puts his name on us and then we spend the rest of our life enjoying his blessing without pursuing his heart. Our salvation is not the finish line. Our salvation is the starting line. Where we start this relationship with God, he puts his name on us and for the rest of our life, every now and then you look down and you're like, oh my word, I've got his name on me. I don't deserve this. And it's just another reminder how merciful God is. May the Lord bless you. That word bless is barak. It is in what is called the pile form. There are different forms to words. So the pile form of barak means this. It means when you bless somebody in this particular way, you bow before that person and bless them. Now, I've been to some places. I've been around different leaders, you know, whether it's a, and none of that matters. But I'm, I'm remembering a memory I had when I, went, I was in a remote village in the middle of nowhere in Africa. And I had audience with the chief of this tribe. And I was told this chief is more powerful than the president of our country, more powerful than the general of our military. This chief wields the power. When our head of state wants to get something done, our head of state, talk, head of state talks to this chief. There are three primary tribes in this particular African country. This chief was the chief over the largest tribe. So I had the meeting with this chief. And I was taught, when you come into the presence of the king, you do not make eye contact. You keep your head down and you wait to be spoken to. All right. So I walk into this hut. I'm doing everything I can to be honorable and not break the rules. And the chief gets up off of his throne, walks right up to me, and gives me a big old hug. 
My friend who was with me, who's, a part, who's uh, from that tribe, was blown away, completely shocked. Uh, the chief doesn't do this. So when you're coming to the presence of earthly royalty, you're taught that you don't come empty-handed. You come with a gift. So I had a gift, right? It's amazing how far a jar of peanut butter will get you in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> okay? So wanted peanut butter. <sighs> when God blesses us in the pile form, God does not sit on his throne and wait for you to approach him. This is what the pile form of Barak means. It means that God, the King of Kings, the one whose name is so holy and sacred, we don't know his name. We try and that's okay. Rather than waiting for you to crawl and come before his throne and he petitions you to to draw near, it means that he gets up off of his throne the king who dwells in inapproachable light in whom there's no shadow of turning, which is what that book teaches. He gets up off of his throne and he barracks you in the pile form. He bows before those he died for and he blesses you. That's what happens when salvation comes. The king of kings, C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, God conquers you with his love. The Bible says it this way, God's kindness leads us to repentance. The king of kings bows before you and he extends gifts, the gift of salvation. Whenever people hear the gospel, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever, whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. When people reject him, And they say no. They're literally looking the king of kings in the face who bows before them with the gift of salvation and they say no thank you. He bows before those he died for. It's offensive to the mind. Whenever you come before him in the morning, let's say you do it in the morning and before you head out to work, you wanna spend time with him and you get your Bible or you sit in his presence, you're connecting with him, whatever it is you're doing. There he is. There he is. In his holiness and his grandeur, he extends gifts. When we don't allow for the gifts of the spirit to flow through our life, We look the king of kings who bows in front of us and extends those gifts to us. We look him in the face and say, I'm not interested. The gift of hospitality, the gift of administration, the gift of faith, whatever it may be. May the Lord bless you and keep you. That word keep is a word that's used in the circles of animal husbandry. So, if you go to um, certain parts of Africa and uh, you interact with the Maasai or the Masimara tribe, okay, tribes, here's what they do, and they still do it to this day. It's what I found the greatest metaphor or visual for what this word keep in number six means, shamar. What they will do when the sun sets in places like Kenya and Tanzania, when the sun sets, they'll take their cows and put their cows in a circle. The Maasai tribe will do this. And then they go and grab thorns and thistles and they build a wall of thorns around their cattle because that's all they have. Like that is their life. They build a wall of thorns around their cattle 
And at night, the hyenas will walk around the wall of thorns, staring at dinner. But the hyena will not penetrate the wall of thorns. You can see the eyes of the hyenas. And they're staring at dinner, not just the cows, but you. You can see the eyes of the lions and they're just walking around the wall of thorns. They will not penetrate it. When the king of kings gets up off of his throne and bows before you and extends gifts, he doesn't just bless you, he wraps his arms around you like a wall of thorns and he keeps you. He embraces you. Now we understand why scripture says that our adversary prowls around us like a roaring lion. The writer of that verse would have understood, would have known number six. He keeps me like a wall of thorns. Amazing. You know, you can see the adversary prowl around you, but he will not penetrate the arms of the Lord, will he? He can't. Just because you can see him doesn't mean you're in danger. May the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine. This word face is panim, it's plural, believe it or not. It's not sing singular, it's plural. Literally, may God cause his faces to shine upon you. God can have more than one expression on his face at the same time. To the anxious heart, when you look at his face, you see a certainty and a steadfastness. To the ashamed heart, the heart who even today, as we're here, you're thinking in the presence of God, whatever that means to you at your stage on the journey. Perhaps you've thought and wondered what God thinks about you. And if you're like I used to be, I used to struggle with shame. To the ashamed heart, you look at his face, you see grace. To the weary heart, you look at his strong face. To the face of the one whom God has asked you to take a step of faith, when you look upon his face, you see a courageous face. May the Lord cause his faces to shine upon you. I'm 45, so I met, I met the Lord when I was 17. It's about 20 years ago. And I'm learning more and more that God often directs us, not with a, his voice, but with a glance. Because we were designed to be face to face. The Psalm says, God will not withhold his face from us. Ancient Hebrews believed that the greatest consequence of sin was not eternal punishment after we die, but it was the hidden face of God. When we come before the Lord and we need direction, for example, Lord, I'm not sure which is the right decision. Do I go right or do I go left? Sometimes I'm learning more and more. Rather than God speaking, God will motion. There's this realm of intimacy with God that's possible where you can, you can, um, you may not hear his voice, but you still know the intent of his heart. When I was growing up, my grandma was uh, deaf when she passed away. And um, back then, 
hearing aids were not cosmetic. I mean, they were the size of bricks, you know, attached to the side of her head. And hearing loss runs in my family. And so whenever we would go to the grocery store, um, in order to get her attention, you had to yell at her. And so I would yell at her. And it's not because she would hear me, but if you yelled loud enough, it caused the ancient hearing aids to vibrate. And she would turn around and look for whoever's lips were moving, and she would read your lips. She knew what you were saying, but she didn't hear your voice. Perhaps one of the greatest privileges to knowing the Lord is to be face-to-face, and even when you don't hear his voice, I'm reminded of one of the Holocaust survivors. I believe in the sun even when it doesn't shine. I believe in the Lord even when I do not hear his voice. I think it was Eli Weissel, if I'm remembering correctly. says, may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face or faces to shine upon you. We don't just want to be face to face. We want his face to shine, don't we? That word shine is also found in another part of the Bible that maybe you've at least heard about. If not, it's okay. In Genesis 1, remember, in the beginning, the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. The spirit of God is hovering over the waters. That's what it says in Genesis 1. And then God speaks one word according to what we have access to, or light. It's the same word used for shine. God's face shines. This, the, the same force and power and creative genius that was there in Genesis 1 that caused light and darkness to separate. And before you know it, we've got photosynthesis. And because of light, we have color. You take light out of the world, there is no color. There's no such thing as darkness, only absence of light. But because of light, we have color. Because of light, we have plants. Because of light, we have quantum theory and all the other stuff that that we know about. His face shines, and that same thing that occurred in the cosmos can occur within the human soul. It's a miracle. His face shines, and his shining face reminds us that God is gracious. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. I love that God's face isn't hidden in the darkness. I love that God turns the lights on and causes his face to shine so that when we look in his eyes, we see grace. Hmm. We're going into Thanksgiving. Uh, I'm reminded of John 6 when Jesus gave thanks when he didn't have enough. Do you remember the story? He took a few loaves of bread and a few fish. And before he multiplied them, he gave thanks. The word is Eucharisto. It means good grace. He doesn't have enough, so he says, good grace. And all of a sudden, the food's multiplied. Jesus and his friends leave the hillside where the miracle was performed. His friends get into a boat. Do you remember the story? They get into a boat. Then before you know it, Jesus walks on the water. 
and they reach the other side and they reach the other side and then before you know it, they get back into the boat and they go back. And how does the Holy Spirit who inspired scripture describe the place where Jesus multiplied the bread and the fish and fed thousands? It does not say they went back to the place where God performed a miracle. It does not say they went back to the place where Jesus multiplied the bread and the fish. It says they went back to the place where Jesus gave thanks. Giving thanks is a form of spiritual warfare too. And his face shines so that when we behold his face, we see good grace. He's gracious to us. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you. Revelation chapter one, verse 16 and 17 says, he had, Jesus, had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said to me, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. When we come before the face of God and we behold his countenance, it is terrifying. Not because he's angry, but because his grace and his love is so pure and so voluminous we don't know what else to do other than fall down and die because we don't think there's no way he's that good. The king of kings gets up off of his throne and today he kneels in front of you and he extends gifts. And then he wraps his arms around you. He causes his face which means he looks at you, he makes eye contact with you. He causes his face to shine upon you and he's gracious. And when it says, may he lift up his countenance upon you, it's like the grandfather who sees the little child. The little child comes running up to granddad. Granddad doesn't palm the child's head like a basketball. Granddad puts down his backpack and his briefcase and gets down with the little one and you know what's coming scoops up the little child and tosses the child in the air. And gravity always pulls the face of the child down. And all that child sees is the face of the one holding him or her. The Lord wraps his arms around you. And when it says, may he lift up his countenance upon you, literally it means when he scoops you up and tosses you. Life in God means when we accept the gift of salvation from the one who bows in front of us and extends the gift of salvation, it means a life of him embracing us and scooping us up. And when we don't know where to go, he carries us. But what I love about God is he doesn't just tuck us underneath his arm like a football. He enjoys us every step of the way and he tosses us in the air. He lifts up his countenance upon us. That's how we receive his peace. <laughs> the proud he knows from afar, but he dwells with the humble. <laughs>